know that we have four Gospels. Only two of those Gospel writers tell us anything about the birth of Jesus. Mark skips right to his adult life, doesn't deal with his childhood at all, certainly not his infancy. And John, in his Gospel, he, in his prologue, deals not with the events or circumstances of Jesus' birth. He gives us a theology of the Incarnation in chapter 1, which is also important. Matthew's account of the verse, which is the one you heard Andy read here, um, frankly is like the record of the rest of his life when he's describing the infancy and birth of Jesus. Matthew gives the most Jewish account of the life of Jesus, and what we mean by that is he was writing, we know, for the purpose of convincing a Jewish audience that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Okay? His burden was to reveal that Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment, the embodiment of all the prophets and priests and kings who had come before in Jewish history. Matthew will often record an event in the life of Jesus and then explain how that event is the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy to bring in the Jews. The stories in the Bible, including this one, are so well written that it's easy because they're so engaging. It's easy to get lost in the wonder of the story. And this one, again, is right up there with the best of them. In, in this story, you have the almost perfect villain in the person of King Herod. Now, we know from historians, because he was obviously a historical figure, he was a ruthless, insanely jealous, paranoid butcher who ruthlessly reigned over the Jews. Here's this guy's personality. When he died, he wanted people sad, but he knew that he wasn't the kind of person to invoke that kind of sadness with his own loss of life, and so he ordered those around him to sacrifice thousands of people so that people would be sad at his death. Now, they didn't carry that out, but that gives you a little bit of window into Herod's soul. This was not a nice guy. So he's unstable, he's unpredictable, and he injects into this story conflict and wonder. There are also these so-called wise men, uh, magi, literally, we'll see come later, they come from the east. These are wealthy Gentile sages. They're fascinating misfits to this very Jewish story. But they have been profoundly affected by what they've heard about this young King Jesus. We see the apparent vulnerability of this teenage girl, Mary. Then there's a strong supernatural element in this story. We see the, the star that miraculously directs the Magi to Bethlehem, a prophetic dream that warns them not to return to Herod, and of course the presence of the angel Gabriel. So there's a strong supernatural element in this as well. Again, the story is so good we have to guard against being enamored with the details and characters to the place where we miss the fact that the main character, as it is in all the, the Bible stories, is God. And our job, first and foremost, in all the Bible stories, is to look for him, what he's doing. And his fingerprints are everywhere in this story, even where he's not mentioned explicitly. So let's look at this through that God-focused lens. We're on a God hunt looking at this story. And so our main point from the story, when you're looking at it from God, would be stated this way. The incarnation of Christ puts on display the glory and steadfastness of God. Now, you could make that statement about the entire Bible. But I want to highlight two areas where we see this uniquely in this story. 
The first area in the incarnation where we see God so clearly is we see God's glorious upside-down heavenly value system. What I mean by that is if you really want to see what matters to God, what's important to Him and what is not important to God, His agenda, His priorities, the details of this story powerfully reveal it. The Bible consistently teaches that what God values more than anything is His glory, and more specifically, that He receives the glory that He deserves. Isaiah 48.11 tells us God's ultimate motive for His ministry to His people is, For my sake, for my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Now God's desire for His glory doesn't make Him an egomaniac as it would if it were our desire, okay? The priority for his glory in God simply points, among other things, to his own integrity. The truth is, he deserves all the glory, so it would be patently unjust for him not to receive the glory. And God is just, so he wants that. There are other reasons too, but that's just one we can look at briefly. We see God's upside-down value system from this world in so many places in Scripture, And one place in particular, we especially see how God gets glory through this upside-down value system is in 1 Corinthians. It's in chapter 1, Paul is talking to the church in Corinth, the believers in Corinth, who in their pride had become absolutely smitten with the wisdom of this world. That is, they really became attached to the way this fallen world accomplishes things. And so Paul reveals the wisdom of God by turning the world's value system on its head. It's completely opposed to it. For instance, God chooses to do his kingdom-expanding work through means that the world would call foolish. The kind of people, the kind of circumstances that he chooses to work through are, according to Paul, low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. A crucified Messiah a crucified Messiah. That's the ultimate example of this upside-down value system. But it runs throughout all the Bible stories. And the reason why for this, for this upside-down value system in the Bible is according to 1 Corinthians 1.29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts boasts in the Lord. There's God's agenda again, isn't it, for his glory. God will not permit his work to be done or his kingdom to be advanced in such a way that will take the focus off him and put it on some super talented or super powerful or wealthy person because the world will look at that and they would give credit or power to the impressive person or the talented person or the wealthy person and not to God. So the way that God guarantees that he's going to get the credit is to accomplish his work on earth through decidedly unimpressive people. Because anyone can accomplish something with enough talent and money and influence, but only God can do astonishing things without those through very humble, average kind of people. So as God works his awesome works through unimpressive people, no one is tempted to rob him of the glory that he's due. When we look at the incarnation narrative, we see that it is saturated with this value system. For example, in, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus was born not in Jerusalem, 
That's the great city of David. That's the home of the temple. That's the political and spiritual capital of the Jewish people. Neither was he born in Shiloh or Hebron, two other spiritually impressive spiritual centers within Judaism. Those places would have been, in the world's value system, strategically logical places for the king of the Jews to be born. It would have made sense for him to be born in those two places. But, of course, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now, Matthew reminds us that Bethlehem was important in one way. It's important because in Micah, it is predicted to be the place of Jesus' birth. So it is important in that one limited sense. But in the world's eyes, Bethlehem is the absolute picture of obscurity. It's 10 miles from Jerusalem, which means that except for rare things like a Roman census, which is what brought Joseph and Mary there, there's no reason to go to Bethlehem. Okay? Bethlehem was at its best a place you stayed overnight on the way to Bethlehem. It was a first century rest area on the road to the big city, the important city, where all the action's happening. So in this sense, Bethlehem was part of what Paul called the low and despised things of this world. Now we also see the opposite side of this truth in the story. And by that I mean other people in the story who in the wisdom of the world should have been very important players to God actually end up being either irrelevant or strongly opposed to the birth of the Messiah. Matthew mentions twice that King Herod is the king of the Jews. So Herod was the legally appointed king of Judea. And the world's wisdom would have cast Herod in the role of an ally, a support. He was the recognized king of the Jews. And if Herod were in the corner of this new Jewish king, that would have set him up for rapid political advancement. He had position. Herod had authority. He had power to be great, greatly helpful to this vulnerable young king. But in God's upside-down system, in his wisdom, to make sure he gets the glory, God takes King Herod and instead uses him and his great political power as a foil through his jealous desire to kill the infant king. Herod does that in God's providence to display the supremacy of God's power as the Lord repeatedly outsmarts this wily powerful and murderous king so who does god use to help out his son in the context of opposition one obvious answer according to the world's wisdom is the group with the spiritual authority within judaism that would have made sense we see the role god gives to the spiritual leaders in verse four where we read that herod assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people he inquired of them where the christ was to be born surely these men would be the heroes. They were the Jewish religious leaders who were well acquainted with the raging jealousy of King Herod. They would surely be alarmed that this man had heard about the birth of their Messiah, and they knew that Herod would see him as a threat to his throne. So when Herod inquired about the birthplace of the Jewish Messiah, these Old Testament scholars, teachers of the law, and holy men, they would surely use their spiritual clout and their understanding of the messianic prophecies to shield their little king from this madman. And they would rejoice at the possibility that their long-awaited Messiah had been born. That would have made a ton of sense in the world's wisdom. God, however, of course, had a different plan, didn't he? Instead of using the spiritual insight of these Jewish religious leaders to help their new Messiah, they instead become allies of King Herod. 
They go into Herod and they answer his question as to the place of the birth of the Jewish Messiah. They quote the Old Testament prophecy from Micah 5.2, which predicts the child's place of birth to be Bethlehem. And then they go back to studying their religious books. One of the most sickening ironies in this story is the utter silence that they give in response to the news that their long-awaited Messiah had been born. That silence is deafening. They don't lift a finger to even investigate the claims about their king, their deliverer. Even more bizarre, again, they knew that the insanely jealous King Herod would see this baby as a threat to his political dynasty and would surely seek to kill the child, and they don't lift a finger to stop this murderous butcher from killing their king until instead they say, go to Bethlehem. God wants the glory, so he uses this upside-down system again. He uses another group to come to the age of his son Jesus, an undescribably likely group, these magi from the East. This is an astonishing choice, especially in the world's perspective, but even to us, this is an astonishing choice for these men to even be in this story, much less to be used for God's agenda. First, the magi were Gentiles, okay? They weren't part of God's chosen people. Why would God use Gentiles to rescue the Jewish Messiah? We'll see at least part of the answer in a few minutes. Second, we have to remember these magi were pagan astrologers by trade. Not astronomers, astrologers by trade. They were Eastern sages who spent a whole lot of their time studying the heavens, the starry constellations, for the purpose of divining or foretelling the future. That's what magi did. The Old Testament law calls that divination. And it's consistently condemned as a capital crime. After seeking guidance from anybody, from, from, from the fortune tellers to anybody else, seek guidance only from the God of Israel. Every time divination is mentioned in the Old Testament, it's in a context of judgment. In Isaiah 2.6, God condemns his own covenant people. Why? For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. God condemns his people because they've actively sought after things from the east like fortune tellers and diviners. And again, the wisdom of the world looks at this misfit occult practicing magi from the east and they say, these are the villains. I mean, these are the Darth Vaders of the story. These people are from the dark side. But instead, God uses these pagan fortune tellers to be his chosen instruments by not going back to Herod and telling him that the Messiah is in Bethlehem. And that delay enables the baby to get away along with his parents. Okay? Why does God use them? What is it about God's wisdom that picks out these magi? Well, one reason this brings him glory is because the Magi were intent on worshiping his son. These incredibly unlikely men shared God's agenda. Their stated purpose in verse 3 is, For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Even with their pagan baggage, which God in no way endorses, they had studied the Hebrew Scriptures, 
They had found the promise of the great king and at great cost to themselves, trusted in God's word, traveled to Bethlehem where they eventually worshipped this young Jewish king. God could use them for his glory because at the end of the day, he had placed even within these pagan hearts his agenda to trust his word and to worship his son. Contradict these magi, these Eastern occultists, with the religious Jewish leaders. It's upside down. The ones who are trying to worship God are the ones who shouldn't be, and the ones who are trying to kill, or at least open to kill, the Jewish Messiah are the ones that shouldn't be. It's upside down. Then you can see this in Luke's value system as well, this godly value system as Luke's account. There's this stark contrast between Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is a Jewish priest. He's greeted by the angel Gabriel, very prominent angel in the Old Testament. When he's in the holy place, Gabriel appears to him. And Gabriel predicts that Zechariah and his wife Sarah will have a son, and he's going to be this great prophet in advance of the coming Messiah. But when Zechariah hears this wonderful news about his miraculously conceived son, this privileged spiritual leader, with all of his biblical knowledge and all of his authority, rather than worship God in response to this glorious news, personally spoken to him by the angel Gabriel, who spoke with Daniel, for Pete's sake, he instead chooses to doubt the news. And he audaciously cross-examines this heavenly messenger. And God responds, of course, we know, by shutting his mouth. <laughs> so this one who was in absolutely the perfect place, with the perfect background to spread the news, ain't talking for nine months. Okay? On the other hand, same angel visits a teenage, uneducated, no-account peasant girl named Mary. She has no, zero standing within Judaism. Gabriel tells her something even more outrageous than the news he'd given to Zechariah. Zechariah could have at least pointed to Abraham and Sarah, who in their old age gave birth. There was no precedent for what Gabriel told Mary, none whatsoever, that she as a virgin was going to give birth to the promised Messiah. And what is her response? It's like the Magi, right? God gives her the grace to believe this incredible promise. And in Luke chapter 1, she pours out her heart, and in ten verses... She quotes the Old Testament 23 times in what is known as the Magnificat, okay? She's, she's the one out in the sticks. The Bible scholars are doubting, and, and Mary's quoting the Scripture like a Bible scholar, right? You get this? You understand this? So the high-ranking leader, Zechariah, who knew the Old Testament like the back of his hand, confronted with the astonishing news, he says, not believe in it. There's a second area where the glory and steadfastness of God's heavenly character are displayed in addition to this value system being upside down. We see it in the supernatural coherence of God's word. Now, I need to explain that because that's kind of a vague statement. Many believers tend to view the Bible stories as if they were a collection of snapshots taken at various points in Jewish history. And they assume that these snapshots are placed in the Bible by God, but they don't necessarily see a whole lot of relationship except in very broad ways to these stories and to these snapshots. Well, that understanding of the Bible couldn't be more wrong. And it keeps us from seeing the glory of God's wisdom in the way that he put the Bible together. The Bible is a history of redemption with dozens of redemptive themes that are at various points introduced 
Later in the Bible, they're expanded upon, and then they're repeatedly reintroduced as the Scripture progresses until they're brought into their final fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Okay? The Bible is nothing less than amazing in its construction, in its internal coherence, the way it all so beautifully fits together. It's not a collection of snapshots. It's an indescribably rich tapestry where dozens of threads flow from one section of the Bible to another. We see that coherence so clearly in this story. For example, the appearance of the Magi. That exemplifies at least one of the larger redemptive themes that runs from Genesis to Revelation. And that redemptive theme is God is not simply a tribal God of one nation of people called the Jews, but he is in fact the God of all the peoples. That's from Genesis to Revelation. That's a very prevalent redemptive theme in the Bible. And it's certainly no coincidence that the biblical text that the Magi say they use to make the connection between the star and the birth of the Savior is Numbers 24:17, which is, A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. That prophecy comes from the lips of Balaam. You know who Balaam is? He's an earlier occult figure that God uses to bless his people. Don't miss the line of connection between these two pagan Gentile elements with strongly occult beliefs. We can pick this same redemptive thread, again, God using Gentiles to bear gifts for Jewish kings in 1 Kings chapter 10. What earlier Gentile dignitary visits the first royal son of David, Solomon, is amazed by his glory and comes bearing expensive gifts including gold and spices? Who is the Queen of Sheba. The similarities between her and the Magi are not a coincidence. Her visit is not simply an isolated moment in Jewish history. She's part of a redemptive thread that is further developed in the Magi that's later seen in the first Gentile to receive the Holy Spirit, Cornelius. And it's ultimately in the Gospel of Jesus Christ that this God of all the nations theme is taken a step further. In the Great Commission in Matthew 28, God tells his followers to go into all the nations and spread the good news. The nations is a technical term, meaning all the culturally and ethnically diverse people groups in the world. So God always has had a heart for Gentiles and gathering to himself a group of culturally, culturally, linguistically, and ethnically diverse people. That's always been his heart. This biblical theme reaches its fulfillment in Revelation chapter 7, when John records that people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation are gathered around the throne worshiping God. The Magi represent that thread of God's glorious redemptive tapestry at this particular stage in its development. Likewise, Matthew doesn't simply insert this historically well-known king named Herod to give it some credibility. He, he's, he too is not disconnected from the rest of redemptive history. Think about it. Jesus is the ultimate deliverer of God's people, but he's not the first deliverer. Who's the first great deliverer God raised up to save his people from oppression? Moses. It's Moses, right? Was there in deliverance, the deliverance story of Moses a Herod type who sought to eliminate the perceived threat of male Jewish infants? I think there was. His name was Pharaoh, or he was a Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. 
Exodus chapter 1, he told the Hebrew midwives in 1.16, When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. There the king of Egypt seeks to kill off male Jewish babies who he saw as a threat. But as you may recall, Herod, like Pharaoh, fails. Scripture tells us that at the end of this fallen world, there's going to be one final infamous end times villain who's going to be the culmination and embodiment of all of these previous villains. And then there's the shepherds. The shepherds end up being the first evangelists, the first people to tell other people about the new king. You may know that shepherds at the time of Jesus' birth had such a reputation for lying that their testimony was inadmissible in a Jewish court. Okay? How much sense does it make that crowd as the first witnesses to the king of the Jews who can't, be le- who can't be trusted? It's upside down, isn't it? Finally, we see this story, the indifference and the hard-heartedness of the Jewish chief priests and scribes. This is sadly another very prominent thread within the redemptive history of the Jews. God's prophets for centuries have been railing against these faithless spiritual leaders of Israel who, like the chief priests and the scribes in this story, the Incarnation, were all self-centered and did not have God's agenda at all. Ezekiel 34 represents one of many various words of rebuke spoken against the Jewish religious leaders. He says, The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. That would be a fitting indictment for the hearts of these scribes, isn't it, as it relates to their indifference to the Messiah. They left him out to be food for this wild beast named Herod. This threat of godless, this threat of godless Jewish spiritual leaders reaches its apex 30 years later, doesn't it? When perhaps some of these same men, much older, work to destroy their own Messiah by conspiring to crucify him as a cursed criminal. Stephen, standing before these same spiritual leaders who wanted Jesus crucified, finishes his sermon in Acts chapter 7, calling these religious leaders, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. That's explicit, a redemptive thread. He's picking up again, isn't it? See, there's continuity here in the glorious tapestry of redemptive themes, and the Bible repeatedly uses that to point to the wisdom of God. We see in the story of the Incarnation this richness of the repeated themes in Scripture, and from them we can glory in the God who writes history this way and who inspired such a unique work of divine revelation. The Bible's a wonderful book. You read it through, look for these redemptive themes. They're all over the place. A couple of points in application as we close. First, as we think about the wisdom of the world, do you prize and are you living according to God's wisdom or the world's? The Corinthians were impressed with the outwardly impressive glitz, the personal talent, position, status, material wealth of this world. God's not only not impressed with that, he regularly uses the foolish things of this world to further his kingdom to show the emptiness of those fleeting temporal commodities. As you think about what's important to you, what you spend your spare moments thinking about, do your priorities match God's? Or is what you value, what you daydream about things or people 
that while being outwardly impressive are destined for complete irrelevancy to you the moment you die. God demonstrates for us in this incarnation story what is important to Him. Looking to the Scriptures in childlike faith, believing them and acting on them in a way that exalts His Son. That's what Mary did. That's what the Magi did. That's His agenda. That's His value system for us. Is that the priority in our life? Allow the priorities of the kingdom that we very briefly looked at today to be the template for the way that you make decisions in your life. Second, as we said, this This redemptive tapestry of history woven through the Bible all comes together in Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. If you're here today and you've not placed your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you have missed the Bible's main message for you. The Bible teaches that all of us are sinners, have fallen short of God. We can in no way measure up to his perfect standard. The Bible teaches that God is holy. That means he hates sin and he must punish it. And as our Creator, He has every right to do so. But the Bible also teaches that God loves sinners, like you and me. And He demonstrated that love by sending His Son to die for people who through their refusal to accept Him as the King of their life are shaking their fist in His face whether they realize it or not. Rather than force me to receive the punishment I had coming to me in hell, God sent Jesus to receive my punishment for me. All of his righteous anger and holy wrath that my sins deserve, he instead chose to vent on his son. That means he's not angry with me. He was angry and punished his son in my place. And he had nothing deserving of any of God's anger. He's forgiven my sin and through faith in Christ has made me acceptable to him as his son, Jesus. It's amazing. That's the gospel. If you're here today and you've not placed your trust in Jesus and what he's done for you, you need to do that today. Jesus Christ and the gospel message you've heard is the fulfillment of all the redemptive themes in Scripture. God's glory is seen most fully in how he saves sinners from their sins through his son Jesus. Believe on him so that you too can know the joy and marvel and wonder and glory of loving God and living for His glory, for His glory and for your joy. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much. God, we just, we're just awed when we see You, when You give us a glimpse of Your wisdom, when You help us to see how upside down our value system is from Yours sometimes. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for all of us. God, show us where we're living according to the value system of this world, where we're so impressed with, with all the things that money can buy and, and position and power and influence and all the rest. Oh, God, help us, Lord, not to spurn those things if you give us those things, but God, help us to see that we're not dependent on those and you're not dependent upon those to accomplish your mission. You're dependent upon people who, by your grace, are like Mary, who just hear your word and believe it and do it. God, help us to be people like that for Jesus' sake and in his name, amen.